0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Hope your weekend is going well. Let's talk uh, Ukraine proxy war. Many fish, officials, top officials in the NATO world, are talking increasingly about the growing prospect of direct confrontation with uh, Russia. Um, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, got it rolling this week when he said... Um, it is a terrible war in Ukraine, and there's also a war that can become a full-fledged war that spreads into a major war between NATO and Russia. Um, and he added, there is no doubt that a full-fledged war is a possibility. Now, he also said, we're working hard on that every day to avoid that. But uh, I don't think he's speaking uh, for everybody there, because I think there are people in NATO who do want a full-fledged war with Russia, because really, as has been obvious to those, or at least to me, from the start, that the idea that Ukraine, given its size and uh, the strength of its military, could withstand a you know long-term Russian onslaught uh, was always a fantasy. And now Ukraine is falling into winter, and Russia has massively escalating, as we've talked a lot about on on uh, in this space. Um, Russia, after avoiding civilian infrastructure for the large part in the initial phase of the war has now started attacking it and it is you know accurately uh, as people accuse it of uh, weaponizing winter to basically force Ukrainians into submission and so it makes sense that for Ukraine to have a chance they they need to have direct military intervention and that's why recently we saw things like this um air missile defense that was fired by Ukraine uh and hit Poland initially that was blamed on Russia and even you even had some US officials saying that we know that this came from Russia, falsely. And I think that there was an agenda behind that. I think no matter what President Biden's policy is, there are powerful elements of his own government that want to have a direct confrontation, especially people who don't understand what that confrontation would look like because they don't fight. They don't actually engage in wars. So Stoltenberg said that, that a full-fledged war is a possibility. And then today, here's Adam Schiff, the, uh, the outgoing chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Do
1: you think the risk of direct conflict is growing? I,
2: I think it is growing. Uh, I think it is manageable, and I think the Biden administration has done a remarkable job in managing that and not letting it get out of hand. Um, but you see Putin continue to rattle the nuclear saber, which is extremely dangerous. Uh, it, it can't deter us, though, from giving our full and complete support to Ukraine. They are fighting valiantly, and democracy itself, uh, I think, is the... the cost of the struggle
0: so that's shift he's saying that yes i do think it the the threat is growing of direct confrontation uh and then he says basically that the risk is worth it because this is a a fight for uh democracy and freedom um even as meanwhile the ukrainian government does things like banning one of ukraine's largest churches because it has ties to russia so that's that's all done supposedly in the name of freedom and who's being sacrificed in all this well primarily it's ukrainians uh, we had that incident uh, recently where the president of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, had that video where she mentioned, in, uh, talking about the war, that she said, quote, more than 100,000 Ukrainian military officers have been killed so far. More than 100,000 killed. Um, before, when 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 that figure was discussed, it was 100,000 killed or injured. Uh Ursula von der Leyen said that it was 100,000 Ukrainian military officers killed, and so what did the EU do in response to that? They deleted that line from her video uh, because she blurted out the inconvenient truth. So it's Ukrainians primarily who are being sacrificed, but it's of course the rest of Europe too. And um, there was just an an analysis in the Economist magazine, you know, the heart of the establishment in Europe, uh, which says this um, with with electricity prices near their current levels, around 147,000 more people, 4.8% more than average would die in a typical winter than if those costs returned to the average from 2015 to 2019. So basically the EU in giving up Russian energy is willing to sacrifice an additional 147,000 more people uh, who will not be able to uh, survive This winter, because they can't afford heating costs. And that's the price, you know, according to Adam Schiff's logic of, uh, of freedom. And just now, you know, there's, there's a new attempt now to cap the price of Russian, uh, oil. Uh, and so what Putin is doing, he's just announced is he's, he's going to consider cutting oil production, uh, in response to this price cap. And, uh, Putin said on Friday that he simply just won't sell to countries that, um, impose this price cap on Russian oil or who join the embargo, the embargo on uh, Russian oil. And so what will that do to all, to all these places? It will make things even worse because right now they're making do without Russian gas because that's been cut off or, or at least, at least significantly reduced. And now they're facing the prospect if they try to impose this price cap on Russian oil that Russia won't sell to them. So we're just looking at more sacrifice, more suffering for everybody. I think the, I think Russia accounts for like 30% of Europe's oil supply. And without that, like, what do you do to replace that? Um, on the point about weaponizing winter, which is what Russia is doing in Ukraine, I wanted to say something else, which is that, you know, the US to accuse Russia of that, I think it's accurate, but it's also very hypocritical because what's happening right now in Syria, um, here's a new headline from Reuters Syrians brace for long, cold winter as fuel crisis bites. And what the article says is that. Um, nine out of 10 Syrians live under the poverty line and the number who urgently need help this winter has increased 28% compared to last year, according to aid groups. Now, um, why is that? Well, first of all, when it comes to the supply of fuel, the U S is militarily, militarily occupying one third of Syria, including its, uh, oil rich region, uh, in the, uh, in the north. So Syria can't access its own fuel. And meanwhile, when Syria tries to import fuel from abroad, like from Iran, those tankers get, um, basically harassed and even attacked. Israel's been bombing tankers carrying fuel to, to Syria. So it's not just Russia that's adopting a, a policy of collective punishment. They're basically joining the U.S. In, in, um, in doing that policy. Uh, the U.S. applies it to countries that it wants to overthrow or destabilize. And now Russia is doing that in Ukraine. So it's hypocritical for the U.S. to single out Russia as somehow unique for what it's doing in Ukraine when the U.S. is, is basically taking advantage of the fact that Syria is destroyed from a 10-year dirty war that left it in rubble and now using its sanctions that explicitly target reconstruction uh, to prevent rebuilding and uh, prevent the import of fuel. So just to give you an example of how sweeping U.S. sanctions are, this is a clip of Joel Rayburn. He is a former he is the former uh, U.S. special envoy for Syria which basically means he's in charge of torturing Syria and designing policies that torture average Syrians because the policies he produces don't hurt the people in government in Syria. They hurt the people. So this is Joel Rayburn bragging back in June, 2020 about how easy it is to basically prevent any reconstruction in Syria because of us sanctions that he helped design called the Caesar act. And this is what he said.
3: Sanctions normally, you know, for those who worked um, in in the government have had experience with sanctions Oftentimes there can be a very high hurdle for the evidence uh, that you have to uh, that you have to gather in order to uh, uh, prove legal sufficiency under certain sanctions authorities. Um, the Caesar Act really lowers the bar for us. Uh, we don't have to prove, for example, that a company that's going in to do a reconstruction project in the Damascus region um, is dealing directly with. Uh, the Assad regime. We don't have to have the evidence to prove that link. We just have to have the evidence that proves that a company or an individual is investing in that sector, in the construction sector, the engineering sector, um, most of the aviation sector, finance sector, uh, energy sector, and, and so on.
0: So that's how the U.S. is weaponizing winter and sanctions in Syria, by basically sanctioning any possible entity that wants to help Syria rebuild. they basically keeping Syria in ruins and preventing it from importing the goods that it needs to provide for its own people. And so that's leading to misery. As Joel Rayburn just bragged about on Twitter, and let me read you what he wrote, because this is a good window into the mentality of people who make policy in Washington. Now, he's no longer in office, but the policy is bipartisan. Biden's basically continuing it, although he's he's made a couple of exemptions, but it's still the same policy. So this is what Joel Rabin says on, on Twitter, on Twitter. He says Assad's economy and state are collapsing. And by Assad, he means Syria to justify doing this to Syria. You have to personalize everything into, and reduce a whole state to one uh, cartoonish villain, which is Assad. So Assad's economy and state are collapsing, no fuel, no electricity, no commerce streets, empty. Assad just prints money to pay salaries, bills result. Inflation making basic needs unaffordable. Pound crash to, uh, you know, a a huge, a, a massive rate per dollar, making imports impossible. Syrian government with no fuel and power shuts down offices, schools, services to cut costs. Unprecedented. People desperate. Many trying to leave regime areas, even crossing seas. Now you'd think someone's saying that people are desperate in Syria and that they're shutting down schools because of a a fuel and power crisis. You'd think they'd be critical of that. that They're saying this as a lament. He's bragging about this because this is the intended result of sanctions that uh, he imposed. And it's the people who impose this know very well that U.S. sanctions deliberately hurt hurt the people. So, for example, here's James Jeffrey, who was a former U.S. envoy for Syria as well. He was a colleague of Joel Rayburn's, writing in Foreign Affairs, that U.S. sanctions, quote, crushed the country's economy through sanctions, talking about uh, Syria. And another guy named, uh, his last name is Tabler, I think it's Jeffrey Tabler. He says, um, U.S. sanctions introduced in 2019 have dramatically increased economic pressure on Assad and have helped lead to a roughly 250% decrease in the exchange rate between the Syrian pound and the U.S. dollar the severe depletion of regime coffers and corresponding cuts in regime subsidies that have exacerbated fuel and food shortages for everyday Syrians. So what he's saying is, Tabler, this guy, he's saying that because uh, the U.S. has imposed sanctions on Syria, the government has, has made cuts to subsidies for everyday people, and this has made food shortages uh, even more acute. So he's, he's basically bragging about this as if it's some kind of achievement. So... Um, that's the policy and, and sorry, sorry, his name is Andrew Tabler, not Jeffrey, Andrew Tabler, also a former, uh, state department official, uh, and back to Syria, uh, back to Ukraine before we open it up to calls, Angela Merkel recently said something really revealing where she revealed talking about the Minsk Accords, similar to what, you know, uh, critics of U.S. policy and, and Ukrainian government policy have argued, which is that she said the Minsk Accords are basically meant to buy Ukraine time to prepare for war. Not to make peace, which is a huge admission. Now it's, you know, some people think that she's just saying that to basically cater to the anti-Russian sentiment right now to basically say that make it look as if she never intended to make a deal with Russia and that all along this was just done to help Ukraine. And some people don't believe that. They actually think that she was actually sincere in brokering the Minsk Accords to end the Donbass Civil War. Um, and now she's just covering, she's just basically trying to, Cater to the right wing mood that exists when it comes to encouraging confrontation toward Russia. But if she's being serious, that's another revealing sign that shows how Russia was put in a tough position and that you had people who you make an agreement with to end, you know, a civil war in the Donbass that Russia was involved in by backing Ukrainian rebels. And they're saying they, they had no intention of ever actually fulfilling it. It was just used to basically prepare for war. So no matter what it is, whether it's Merkel, uh, Merkel c- catering to anti-russia sentiment or her telling the truth it speaks to how hawkish um a world we're in and how difficult it is to to making peace and that's why nato leaders and you know people like adam schiff instead of talking about making peace they're just talking about the possibility of uh more war okay let's uh open it up to calls we only have i only see one caller in the queue and I'm hoping this is not a repeat of last week where there was, a, there was a glitch I couldn't see anybody. Anyway, we'll take calls and see how it goes. So, Gator, go ahead.
4: Hey, Aaron, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um, were you talking about Syria with regards to all of those negative effects? Or were you talking about the UK and all of Europe? I wasn't too sure because I think the same thing's happening over here.
0: In terms of their, their policy towards Syria?
4: Well, the, the whole of the uh, inflationary effects, sh- shutdown of uh, services, utilities, all the rest of it—it's insane. Mm. I mean, we've been talking about my country. Literally, the, we're talking the deindustrialization of Germany, yeah, with direct result of U.S. sanctioning, right? Yep. And they're not forcing it, you know. And we are being spun this bizarre um, mainstream media narrative that inflation is to do with the war. Well, anyone who knows anything about polit- political finance knows that's not true, and also. Right the idea that, that our media is peddling that narrative when what we're really talking about is inflation that's due to purely to political decisions which are completely reversible because because there's no there's no supply energy supply shortages there that's not political it's not that there's oil running out and and that's that's bizarre that that people would be absorbing that information and believing it because it's it's patently obvious right and um I think that's I think that's a sign of the clinical insanity that our regimes have gotten ourselves into.
0: I totally agree. I can't believe what Europe, uh, what European leaders have allowed to be done to themselves. And um, I mean, what is the uh, what is the mood like in your country, the the public mood?
4: Well, I mean, so, you you know, you will probably get this straight off when you open the pages of The Guardian, nothing in it relates to actual reality that you can work out in your head you look at the what's not reported in the guardian and that right. tells you the bits that they don't say are actually what's happening in the world right they don't and and and, and even despite that it's it's reflecting this cost of living crisis you know right. all of these um, kind of oligarchical political maneuvers and the changes in legislation to basically um it make make Britain's society poorer and strip the middle class even harder just like in the us right and then obviously the same thing is happening in in europe i mean the three thousand dutch farmers are having their farms forcibly acquired by the state and 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 that's giving rise to um you know massive um levels of protest the french protesting and all of these things are being essentially ameliorated or suppressed or really downplayed and then the causality for it is being is being misreported as well it's 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 uh, what is it it's kind of like it's kind of like we have gone full tilt into 1984s when yes. we whole creation isn't it the, yeah. and the sucking sound is really loud
0: it, it's very it, it's very there's a lot of cult like behavior there's the you know we have to sacrifice our well-being for this greater cause of what of like defeat of like defeating russia which means uh basically destroying russia as a state because that's ultimately what what like what the aim is is to encroach on russian territory surround it with weapons and if russia somehow uh tries to resist that then they have to be destroyed and we all have to sacrifice ourselves for that cause to me it's it's very cult-like behavior and, and of course our leaders the first people that we're going to sacrifice after ukrainians are average civilians who have to pay higher heating costs mm-hmm. have to lose their jobs because factories close i mean it's it's a it's and everyone is captured by it in the leadership it seems Um, in in the NATO uh, states and if anyone dissents from that like Macron of France sometimes dissents a little bit like recently like Macron actually said that we need to talk about security guarantees uh for Russia um he said um that we need to uh talk about um an end to like we need to address at least Putin's demands of an end to NATO enlargement to roll back uh NATO's military presence uh, to pre nineteen to pre to levels before nineteen ninety seven, like before it expanded, and also to to limit Na- missile deployments on Russia's border because uh, mm. the U S has these missile sites in Poland and Romania that can you know hit Russia yeah. very quickly, and and there, the threat that Russia decided was that U S was going to put more in Ukraine too, and that's why they uh, it was on that basis that they tried to help justify their invasion of Ukraine, and so. So McCorn said we need to at least address that. He didn't say we need to agree to all their demands. And that's just like, that's a non-starter in the US. They just won't even discuss it. And how do you get around that? I, I don't know.
4: Well, the, the funny thing about that, though, is that is what was written by or proposed by Russia prior yep. to the invasion. right. That's right. Which, which basically shows you that there's a capitulation. And, there was, and, and if he sees that as common ground now or, yep. or common potential talking point now, why wasn't it? Why wasn't that possible before? I mean, in Russia, in France, and Germany, did try to sort of break the um, break the build up by mm-hmm. uh, intervening, didn't they? They they tried to get to the table, um, but then the US obviously overruled them and said, "No, you are our lackeys. We're going to do this
0: exactly."
4: Um, but, but but one thing it's interesting that you kind of um, say refer to this um, kind of this war mentality because where have we seen that before the mo of how we're being psychologically conditioned right now is exactly the same as covid war on the enemy we have to fight we have to go through the sacrifice we have to endure lockdown it's your lives that are going to have to take a hit whilst we fight this made-up enemy right the mentality or the modus operandi is the same and i'm going to just go out on a limb here with a bit of a prediction what i think might be worth considering is that what we're looking at now is the impending financial reset which is coming and um what you're seeing are all of the authorities of the us under the us hegemony milking the existing financial system as fast as possible before that time comes because what's happening Mm. we have now got the printing machine on the fastest rate it's ever been under the proviso of war against COVID, print, 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 war against Russia, print, print, print. Where's that money going? Into oligarchs' hands. It's cycling straight through, washing straight through. FTX is, is part of that mechanism. And, and, and I think that that's what's going to be, that's what's driving the rate of, of, of um, this narrative. Get as much money out of the system for any mm. reason whatsoever until you reset it and you know, Yuan China's now wants to bypass the petrodollar altogether with oil sales. Well, who's tried to do that before? Iraq. What, they didn't have nuclear weapons. What happened to them? You know, it's I think that this is I think that this is the final proof of of, of that financial reset narrative.
0: All right. I uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. It, it reminds me of what Julian Assange said about the war in Afghanistan. The purpose was to basically mm. recycle money mm-hmm. back into um you know, the hands of, uh, war profiteers and oligarchs in the NATO States. And certainly we're seeing that, uh, in Ukraine, once again, uh, like uh, right after they withdraw from Afghanistan, they just managed to f- have a new opportunity, uh, inside Ukraine get Thank you for the call.
2: Appreciate it. Pleasure. Take you,
1: Hello. Hi, Lee. Hey, Aaron. I wanted to chime in since call, uh, callers were slow to step up and want to thank that previous caller for his articulate remarks, and I hope he will stay engaged publicly somehow, people like that who explain about following the money so calmly when it is uh oh, have I lost you there? No um, I hear you. It, you got garbled there for a second. Um, are important so in the process of not wanting to just be singing to the choir here which still I mean you are so good at explaining calmly but I don't have an easy way to I have a large network I wish it that's international I wish it was easier people aren't going to you know even if I could find a way to budget to Buy a hundred subscriptions and give them away. People wouldn't read read the stuff, and and on call in, you know that might be a way I could get a few people to to listen. But it, it everything you're saying is true. Is there somebody like maybe a Jeffrey Sachs or the UN seems to be impotent? I, am I missing something? I mean they have. A mission here that's being ignored, isn't it?
0: The UN has a mission that's being ignored.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, isn't am I missing something? Are they not? Are is there not a spokesperson with some guts like Jeffrey Sachs who has the connections and the you know hasn't been,
0: uh, it's, hasn't it's been hard.
1: disappeared Look, yet or somebody? You, I mean, it can't be yeah. you or Matt, you know.
0: Did you follow? Are you familiar with the story that I've covered a lot, the, the OPCW story, the cover-up story about Syria?
1: Yes, but I've probably forgotten the UN's part in that. What did they do?
0: Well, basically, like my point in bringing that up is that so you have at, at least two inspectors on the team who work for the OPCW, which is a UN-adjacent organization.
1: There you who, go. Yeah. Who,
0: like Who spoke up because they saw a cover-up of a major probe. We're talking about an investigation investigation into an alleged chemical attack that was blamed on Syria and used as a pretext by the US to bomb Syria. Yeah. And, you have oh, these ins- and, and, so, and so these inspectors, so they spoke up. And what happened to them? Have they been rewarded by the world for their conscience? Uh, no, the US media, the Western media has completely, completely ignored them. It's done everything they can to pretend they don't exist. There's a report at the Washington Post who wrote a whole book about Syrian chemical weapons. And he ends his book deliberately at the Duma incident, like when it okay. happens. And he ends it there because he doesn't want to cover what happened afterwards, which is that the whistleblowers came out and said that there was a massive cover-up when they investigated the, the... So, like, what I'm saying is for people who are in, in these organizations, like, what is their incentive to do the right thing? Because, well,
1: because the, yeah. It's the things that you're saying that I'm trying to um, say are, are the reason that since the UN in the larger public has... Mm-hmm has respect more than a lot of organizations yeah somebody like a Jeffrey Sachs who has has been um not rewarded exactly but somehow has maintained his stature in Mm -hmm. the international community if he could somehow uh, just insert himself just be proactive somehow and leverage that organization to somehow maybe through another Twitter feed or, so, you know, to get the UN to like highlight, because one of the things that you're not mentioning that, you know, but that is, it's a complex, it's a wicked problem, the whole damn thing. But, but is the following the money part of Syria, it's the Trump saying, don't worry, we still have control of the oil part, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's hard for people it's their their heads explode, and they just want to assume that what Rachel's telling, Rachel Maddow's telling them, or whoever is, you know, she's she's smart, and so she must be telling the truth. And those things can be mutually exclusive, for sure. You know, the truth and intelligence. In fact, it's the really smart, well informed people who know best how to use compassionate communication. Even so, you know. I mean, well,
0: really, I, I, hey, listen, uh, yeah. I, I, I hope like everyone else that more voices of conscience will emerge. I was just trying to. It's just very difficult when you're in that system. You're, you're either, you know, it's very easy to get co opted. You get and you do that by, and you know, that happens by you know bribery, by intimidation, by right. a threat of career consequences. Like, look what right. happened to to Jose Bustani, who was again the OPCW uh, when during the Iraq War, John Bolton. Uh, John Bolton came to him in his office because Bustani was trying to get Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention, and that would have subjected Iraq to regular inspections that would have shown that that all the Bush administration's claims were false, which would have made it very difficult for Bush to go to war. So John Bolton came up to Jose Bustani and said, you have to resign. Um, and if you don't, we know where your kids live. Yeah. And Bustani, oh, yeah. and now many people hearing that would, would, would totally cave and understandably because you want to protect your family. Um, but Bustani didn't. He said, you know, you're not going to bully me. And so Bolton went, basically went to everybody else and said, if you don't oust him, we're going to pull your funding. And he was ousted. Um, and so it's just events like that happen. And they send a message that if you don't tow the, the, the line of the mafia boss, you're going to get ousted. and There's going to be consequences for you. And that's enough to keep people in line. That That's just a sad reality. Um, but, uh, Lee, so thank keep you. up
1: the good work. Thanks. Thank
0: you. Thanks for the call. Okay, Kevin.
5: Uh, hi, Aaron. How you doing? Good. Uh, um, I wanted to call in last time you had a call in, but um, you were having catastrophic uh, technical issues. Yes. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to refer back to that briefly. I'll be brief. Um, I hadn't seen anybody mention this, but Elon handing off that material to um, Matt Taibbi to, to release over his Twitter feed, uh, one of the things that I was happy about personally was seeing that a lot of the public, that had never heard of, uh, an investigative journalist with with really good integrity, you know, they were being exposed to the, to to Matt Taibbi. A lot of people that had never heard of him, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a, you know, coming from uh, somebody coming from watching CNN all the time or Fox News all the time or whatever it is, you know, and uh, maybe reading some more about Matt Taibbi or some of his publications. I, I thought that was a really good uh, side effect of, of what Elon did. So I just wanted to call in and, and say that and then add my two cents to it.
0: Yeah, well, thanks. I think it's great people are getting exposed to Matt as well. And um, look, I have to say, uh, I'm like, is you know, uh, Barry Weiss was the other reporter who got the rest of the Twitter leaks. And I don't personally trust Barry Weiss because while claiming to support free speech, she's for a long time been trying to shut down voices that support Palestinian rights. And I just don't think, you know, And but anyway, but look, it's also, it's not, you know, it's, it's up to Elon Musk who he wants to work with and that's fine. And it's, I don't fault Matt for, um, you know, for being tied to that because, you know, he's just getting the material like that he got and it's good material and it's important. And this, this, there's been a huge effort to pretend as if, Oh, there's nothing there. It's all a nothing burger. We knew all this. Well, we know, we didn't know all this. Like, like we didn't know that internally Twitter executives knew that they had no evidence that Hunter Biden's laptop was the product of a Russian propaganda campaign. So, and we know this now from the Twitter le- leaks that this confirms us. they knew they had no evidence. And that's documented now in these files that Matt reported on. And so um, I think that's important. And the reason people don't want to acknowledge it is not only because they don't want to acknowledge actual independent journalists like Matt Taibbi, who they resent because he's successful as an independent journalist. And that's just like for people who draw their paychecks from corporate outlets. That's just, you know, someone like that is a heretic and has to be punished for daring to strike out on their own. Uh, but also because they all bite into that that story, like they all like they all bite into Russiagate. And so this is just another reminder that they are, instead of being journalists, they're just they're acting as partisans and scenographers for power. And so su- stories like this, in which the censorship of a major story is exposed, embarrasses them more. So there's a, bit, a big effort to, like, dismiss Matt for the fact that he got this from Elon Musk. But to me, what matters is the content of the story, not who uh, not who the source of it is, because uh, it's just that's yeah.
5: I didn't want to mention that about Barry Weiss. I, I, I don't trust her either. Um, and I, and I'm not familiar with Schellenberg that much, but, uh, yeah, I, this whole thing is shocking to me because it's like a major earthquake that the mainstream media is ignoring. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty surprising. Honestly, of
0: course, because they're all complicit. And look from my point of view, like being like leftist, it's like, It's doubly annoying because, you know, for example, Elon Musk said that Twitter only censored the left, but not the right. Well, how does he define the left? Is the left the Democratic Party and their partisans? Yeah. okay. so if that's how you define the left, fair enough. But I define the left as the actual left, which is anti-war, anti-neocon, you know, pro-Palestinian, progressive. Like, and that's not the Democratic Party. Uh, So uh, that's the leadership of the Democratic Party is to be against all those things. And so... It's just the people who are not on the left, and who are are on the right or the center right, they won't acknowledge the actual left. And so it works to their advantage, to pretend as if the left is only Democratic Party partisans, which is just not the case. And I'd be shocked if really this censorship policy only applied to people on the right, which is what which is the impression I get from like the way the way uh, Barry Weiss has. Has has reported it, um, so I'm hoping that there'll be more transparency. Because I'll be shocked if like left wing accounts and pro Palestinian accounts weren't subjected to the exact same censorship regime that some people on the right were. Um, and I don't mind admitting it's like I, you know, either you believe in facts or you don't. So if someone on the right is censored, I have no problem admitting that. But I do have a problem with people um, on the right then just trying to pretend as if the actual left doesn't exist. But that, that unfortunately serves everybody. It serves it serves like corporate Democrats, it serves the right as well, because it reduces the political spectrum to just them. And there's no other voice out there that's trying to offer its own perspectives and um, and solutions. So I hope that will change, but we'll see.
5: Yeah, I, I understand. And uh, I, I agree with you on all points. Um, but that's, that's all. And I thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Take care Thank you. Me.
0: Thanks for the call. All right, Russell.
6: Hey, Aaron. Hi there. How are you doing?
0: Not bad, not bad. How are you?
6: I'm good. Uh, okay, so a couple of access questions. I'm new to call in. How, is there any way for me to, I just stumbled upon you today. Is there any way for me to be informed when you're going to do a call in?
0: I think if you, okay, do you have the app downloaded?
6: Yes, I'm on the app.
0: Okay, so yeah, if you have so if you subscribe to uh, this show, okay, it should give you an alert when I when I schedule. So basically, I do it I do it every Sunday. Um, so it should give you an alert, like once I schedule the time, it should there it should be like a notification saying, you know, this will be live at that. I think
6: so. Okay, so I got to hit some kind of button to subscribe.
0: Yeah, you have got to just you know, it should be easy. Like you. You, you like scroll up above and you see AM live and you click on that. And there should be. Okay. The yeah. I'll
6: figure that out. The yeah. second thing is on the second issue on access before I get to what I want to talk about is on the, on the listeners listed, it lists some of them and then it says 174 others. Is there any way to see the whole list?
0: Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I okay. think, uh, yeah, afraid not. Cause Sorry.
6: it'd be pretty cool to see everybody. Um, all right. So, I wanted to, you you were talking about Barry Weiss. I was thinking Barry Weiss before you mentioned her name, but it just, she just gives me the heebie-jeebies and um, I think it throws some cold water on her reporting because she just interviewed, for example, Netanyahu about his new biography and it was like one of these fawning interviews and um, it didn't sit well. but. On the issue you're talking about today, um, I live in West Virginia and I've written uh, um, locally in our news outlets about the need to uh, pressure our members of Congress to stop, to vote against the military package to Ukraine, that we're just fueling the war. We have to open dialogue and try and stop the war. And it wasn't surprising to me, but the vicious reaction from the liberal Democrats uh, in who are in the minority where I live it's an 80 20 trump area um, was outrageous and you know yelling and screaming and the reality is that what we're gonna have to do is start an you know um, just an independent movement outside the two corrupt parties um, and a, a group of us here in West Virginia want to do that Um I don't think it necessarily has to be another party, um, but it has to be um, sort of a mutual aid party that's anti-war. And uh, it's pretty easy in West Virginia, the ballot hurdles are not that great. And the Democrats are pretty dead here anyway, like the, the West Virginia Senate has 34 seats and 31 are now Republican. And that's a state that for 80 years was controlled by the Democratic party. And for the last ten years, has been controlled by the Republicans. So, I think what has to happen is that, and and when you speak anti when you speak anti-war in West Virginia now, we shouldn't be fighting there. You get support from independents and from open-minded Republicans um, on the ground, and so I think there's a the possibility of a a sort of a grassroots movement to uh, push against both parties because they're both you know, they're both really aligned with the corporate state in West Virginia and the people are suffering. We're number 50 in all the public, almost, you know, we're 50 in obesity, 50 in smoking, I think 49 in alcoholism, um, 42 in suicide. So all the indicators are really bad and the politicians have turned their back on the people. And so a lot of that money that's going to Ukraine into the military and the $800 billion that was just voted for the military could be helping people here.
0: Of course. And if we had an actual opposition party, an actual progressive party, they'd be making that connection. And you know, this is to be a broken record. We even, what's it just, it blows my mind. I, there's no other country in the world that would be like this, where even the most like far left members, all of them, 100% with no exceptions, I'm <laughs> sorry to be redundant, vote to fund the Ukraine proxy war. So Bernie Sanders, all the squad, Ro Khanna, all of them, it's just unbelievable. And it speaks to how captured this country is by the war state that where these politicians feel as if for their political survival, they have to spend tens of billions of dollars on the military industrial complex, you know, and support policies that go against everything that they claim to stand for. And that's just imagine, the, you know, like imagine like like Latin America, meanwhile, elects leaders that actually come from the people and tr- and leaders that actually try to do policies that represent their, their people's needs. But we just don't have that here. And um,
6: was the 37 I, was the additional 37 billion for Ukraine voted on in this last military package? Or is that a separate vote coming up? I'll have to look that up right now. I don't. I, don't, I think.
0: I don't think so. I don't think that's been passed yet. Um, okay, because it it would I be know.
6: interesting to see whether, you know, at, whether there's a Barbara Lee to stand up and say no to it. I doubt uh, it. At,
0: I doubt it. And if there is, it's because they coordinated behind the scenes to make sure it passes. So maybe the squad would be like, all right, like two of you get to um, get to vote for. Uh, Get to vote for it, but the rest of us have to support it because we need because we need the votes. You know, I mean, there was recently, a, I mean, a vote on the uh, foreign relations committee where Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the far right uh, Republican, had a very sensible measure to audit the like eighty billion dollars that had been spent so far on Ukraine, and that got defeated because all the Democrats supported it. Um, and uh, and actually, there was a really funny clip that I will play because it's um. Uh, it's it's like a Democratic member of Congress. I think his name was Connolly, um, and he said that basically he supports transparency. Um, and uh, for <laughs> he supports transparency, uh, but just not right now. So let me actually play that clip. I have it here.
7: This is about reaffirming our support to the Ukrainian people. And their struggle against authoritarianism, their struggle for the simple right to determine their own destiny. I'm
0: going to fast forward. this, We don't have to hear the whole thing. because this, this is the same old. Here it is, I think. Let's see.
7: Okay, wait. This is about reaffirming our support maybe we're not that reliant. And we don't want to send any mixed message on this subject. We want to make sure that that alliance is strong, it's cohesive, and it's unified and that we're showing nothing but solidarity at this precarious moment. It's particularly important since the Ukrainians are actually winning on the battlefield. So I'm all for transparency and accountability, but not in this resolution. Not now, not with this message.
0: Isn't that amazing? I'm all is, for trans- i am all for transparency and accountability, but not now.
6: <laughs> what? What? How would? How, but I don't understand the issue. How would transparency and accountability affect this measure? What is he talking about?
0: Uh, so the proposal was to audit the eighty billion plus taxpayer dollars that have been earmarked for Ukraine. Just to audit it. And so Jerry Connolly says, I'm all for transparency and accountability, just not right now.
6: Okay, who was pushing for the, the audit? The Republicans? Marjorie,
0: yeah, it, it, it was Marjorie Taylor Greene. It, it, was, yeah. it, it, was, it was her. And um, yeah, But Democrat, so look, again, this is a case where the, the far right, for, for all the deranged things that I think Marjorie Taylor Greene says on this issue, I think she's 100% right. This is a very sensible proposal. But Democrats are so far to the right on this issue that they can't even accept a measure just to audit all the money that that they that they've already authorized. And how, I just thought that was a very tongue line.
6: Yeah. I'm going to look at that, but how do you explain for example, um I know personally, you know, um human rights, pretty high level human rights lawyers in the United States who are really sort of warmongery when it comes to Ukraine.
0: I uh, I yeah, I mean look If you are in liberal America, then over the last six years, especially I mean, for a long time, especially in the Russiagate era, um, you've been enlisted in a, you know, warmongering mentality where to the way to be progressive and to like defend liberal values is to embrace a neocon agenda. That's that's been one of the main successes of the Russiagate propaganda campaign so that's how i'd explain it but of course it's gone on for a long time many liberals of course supported the iraq war but i think it's it's on steroids right now russell thanks for the call thank you all right and i see we have a lot of callers now so i'm gonna try to go as fast as we can to get to everybody dan go ahead
2: uh thanks aaron how you doing good i'm uh i'm still uh trying to kind of work through the stats, so uh i'm sorry if you bear with me here a little bit i um I was uh I was watching a, a Democracy Now interview recently, uh but it was uh it was actually Ray McGovern uh debating Timothy Snyder like right after Euromaidan. And like um it, it brought to mind like um yeah, I think you often say that uh how how cynical like sophisticated people are about like uh you know uh, like US imperial aims and stuff like that. But like, you know, in, in this interview McGovern is like, look, this is like the most obvious coup in history, right? We have this phone call, right? Exactly. Like we, we know what happened. Right. And Timothy Snyder says like, well, you know, if if there was anything like super damning in that phone call, we would have heard that too. Like what we're hearing is like, really what like the state department wants to happen, but you know, they don't have that much control over like what's actually going to happen. And like, You have to like think at this point that like Timothy Snyder is like a pretty sophisticated guy, right? And I'm sure that he has like um, basically all the information that Ray McGovern has, but he seems to have come to a different conclusion. And I'm wondering if this is this like is that him being cynical or is that him being like super idealistic because.
0: Yeah, Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think he thinks he's being idealistic, but I think Snyder is a propagandist. I mean, that this is my personal opinion of him is that he's whitewashed for a long time the the power of the far right in Ukraine, um, the fact that it was a coup in 2014, um, and the role of the U.S. and basically using Ukraine as a proxy. And I think he, you know, he's his his role has been to whitewash this. And in fact, I haven't read this yet, but there's a new article on the World Socialist. Website. Um, yeah it's called uh, it's called this. It's called Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands, right wing propaganda disguised as historical scholarship, and this is like a, a multi part. Um, it's, it's a five part article by someone named Clara Weiss, just you know reviewing Snyder's work uh, on Bloodlands, which is about Ukraine um, and the Soviet Union. And um, I uh, so I haven't read it yet, but I, I've heard it's very good and. I've read debunkings of Schneider in the past. There's one by Sophie Pinkman that she wrote a few years ago in the Nation magazine that was great, mm. um, and just shows him to be a, a long time basically. He really hates Russia, <laughs> and he really, yeah. and he just, and that leads him to whitewash the, the the policies of everybody else. So, if you're asking my opinion, I think he's being cynical. Uh, I don't think he's being idealistic. I think he, I think he, I think he deliberately ob- obfuscates the facts. Look, if you look at his work. He wrote a book during the Trump administration called On Tyranny, I think it was called. Um, uh, And it was about, like, basically, he's trying to take advantage of, like, the liberal panic over Trump, how we're going to, like, soon be living under a fascist dictator. And he has, like, all these um, tips for, like, what to do to, like, avoid fascism and, like, help us, like, avoid living under, like, a new Hitler, which is... And one of the things he says is, like, he has all these tips, right? And they're so... um, So, yeah, one of his – so he has all these tips like what to do to help avoid fascism, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of them is, I swear to God – let me quote from it directly. Let me just find it here. Uh, It is make eye contact and small talk, okay? (laughs) Lesson 12, make eye contact and small talk. Um, because that will help you defeat fascism. So it's just like, this is like the level of intellect that he's at. It's just very, very juvenile, I think. It
2: sounds like you got that from Jordan Peterson. But I think exactly. what, what, what I'm talking about is like, it's, it, but this seems to be kind of like a, like a class of person also, because um, if you remember like uh, Brianna Joy Gray and Cirincioni, there's the same kind of thing where eventually Cirincioni like runs out of things to say and he was like, well, we need a victory for freedom right and like of course I was argue- of course yeah, i was arguing with a friend of mine about this and i'm like well you know you have to understand if anybody who isn't like an american heard somebody say that it's it's funny right it's a joke but it's like,
0: such a yeah yeah
2: but yeah. but this guy doesn't seem to be joking you know and no that's, and, that's then, you, and, and like, then you
0: like, and then you and then brianna said like uh, i think she said something like yeah that's that's always the excuse that they give and he's like yeah i know yeah. i mean they said the same thing in vietnam and iraq it was so stupid <laughs> but this time really this actually really is for freedom it's just it's, that's the capture of the liberal culture that, um, that, yeah. that we've talked about a few times today. That's just how it is, and it's, it's a cult. And um, if you're in that cult, you get rewards. You get think tank spots. You get sinecured professor positions like Timothy Snyder. I mean, there are rewards for being in that cult, but it's completely intellectually bankrupt, and it serves a very, I think, uh, destructive uh, end. But that's, that's, yeah. that's Blue Anon. That's why I call it Blue Anon.
2: So, yeah, and I think there's just yeah. one more thing that I want to bring up is that, like, uh, also, I, um, I was listening to uh, there was, like Parallax Views, where they interviewed Christopher Mott, and it was, like, right before he published The Woke Imperium, and he was talking about Samantha Power, and uh, the host asked this guy eventually, like, you know, like, you think, like, these people actually, like, believe this stuff, like, people like Samantha Power, and, and Mott goes like, well, you know, I used to work over there. and It's actually shocking how many of these people are actually true believers, but you have to assume as they go up the ladder, as they get more sophisticated, they're less true believers. But like Samantha Power, like, you know, she says herself in her book that like, you know, um, her, her kind of like driving, like part of her drive, driving force that she's like so sure that she's correct about like American interventions abroad is like conformed by her personal faith. And like you know, and like all this stuff, when when you like start kind of like start to put it together, like you're right, it does it does actually sound like a cult. But you know, it's it's almost strange to call that cynical. Like you know, it's like it's idealistic the way like maybe like a Nazi is idealistic. You know what I mean? Because like I'm pretty sure Nazis thought they were going to save the world too. But would you call a cult leader idealistic? Uh, like
0: what I'm saying is the people in charge know exactly what they're right. doing. And of course they have to come up with ways to justify it to themselves. It's, I mean, Hitler justified what he was doing to himself. He thought he was saving, you know, civilization, but yeah. uh, you know, so everyone, every, no matter what position you're in, you're always going to come up with a justification. And that to me doesn't mean you're, you're idealistic. It means you're um, actually deeply cynical and will exploit anything to justify your, 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 your evil. But yes, I'm sure people like Timothy Snyder, And some of the power, think to themselves that they're saving the world. I I absolutely think that they think that. So, yeah. Um, All right. Thanks for the call, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Nick.
3: Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, uh, so uh, this is going to be the most baby-brained thought in the world, but it it seemed important to just actually say it out loud because I feel like it's not really said anymore. Which is the whole thing about the Twitter files thing? What it really did for me, um, it, it solidified this idea that I, I was struggling to kind of articulate, but now I totally get it. Which is free speech absolutism, and uh, the the thing that I've I've actually come to discover is that uh, even if people say completely horrible, dehumanizing, threatening, intimidating things. Ultimately, I don't want to suppress their ability to do that because I don't want to then pave the lane for somebody to take away my ability to immediately call it out or make fun of it. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And the other thing that I discovered, too, and this this felt like an opening my third eye moment, I think truly that this is where the establishment started to trick us, which is all modern discourse I I would say, like, conservative estimate, like, 80% of it is boiled, like, just just whether or not you can even say the thing in the first place. And I just feel like if anybody on the left that has a real problem with beliefs that are counter to them, if you just immediately say, look, I defend your right to say something, but I'm going to immediately interrogate whether or not you actually believe it, we could get rid of so much of this completely... Irrelevant discourse and immediately move back into the substance of something. And I feel like at this point, the left feels like there's some sort of inherent surrender by just saying that people can have free speech. But like what I really think has happened is that our whole collective confidence has been whittled down to the point that we're so scared to argue that yes. our media impulse is to believe or trust people that want to make it so that Whatever a person's inherent desire to actually voice something is just crushed that we yes. think it's helping us, but it's actually having the exact opposite effect because what it's really done is that it's made us afraid to start even actually entertaining the ideal idea that it's worth talking to each other. I, I totally agree with you. Um, and I think also embedded in that is a certain kind of
0: elitist contempt for average people, that average this belief that people don't know what's in their best interests and they can't sort fact from fiction, and that's a big part of the Russiagate narrative. Like to believe in the Russia Gate narrative, you have to believe that Russia is so evil and uh, magical that it can like brainwash millions of Americans into voting for Trump and not Hillary based on the power of its social media memes and, and its hacked emails. And um, and you know, um, look. It, oh, if sorry. You, if you look at someone like Chomsky, Chomsky's been like a staunch free speech advocate his entire life. You know, he, he wrote a defense of a Holocaust denier's right to publish. And he made very clear that, of course, I find this person's views abhorrent, but I don't think the state should have the right to decide what material people can read or not. I just don't, I don't believe that. Unless you're directly inciting violence, uh, and telling someone to go kill someone else, you know, the, I don't think the state should be policing speech. And one of the things he said, you know, on top of the principle, of just the, you know believing in free speech. If you believe in free speech for uh, yourself, you have to believe in it for someone else, or else you're a hypocrite and have no principles. But also, he also said he's always thought it was a huge gift to the right for anybody on the left to be against free speech because it allows them to, to claim that they're persecuted and that their ideas are so subversive and dangerous that that and, and so and so damning to the you know liberal elite that that they want that 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 the liberal elite has to censor them. And he always said that was a big gift to the right, which I think it is, too. Like, average people, I think, believe in the right. Uh, it, it's just common sense to have free speech. And when you come out as the, as the wing of the political spectrum that doesn't want that, I think you're giving the right a very, a very very big gift.
3: And, and I should have uh, completely understood and been able to articulate it before this week. But, you know, here I am, and I, hey, and I totally yeah. get it now. Well, better late than never. Um, And uh, it's I I mean, and I'll move on past this point, but it's good that you brought up the Russiagate thing, because let's remember what was the actual substance of those email exchanges that were made public. It was the proof that the Democratic Party worked with each other to rig the primary against Bernie Sanders. But, of course, that detail never gets to bubble up to the top because we've just been focused for so many years on just whether or not it was okay for Julian Assange to make that public in the first place. Yes. And that was part of the point was
0: to, instead of talking about the content of the emails, the point was to make it, to make them like kryptonite where you couldn't even discuss them because to do that, you'd be then playing into the hands of the Russians. Uh, the, the, this is what the Russians want. So you can't, you can't even talk about these, um, the content of these emails. And notice how that playbook was recycled in 2020 for Hunter Biden's laptop. Oh, you can't look at this you can't look at a story about Hunter Biden's laptop because it's it's Russian disinformation. It's the exact same playbook. It worked beautifully. And uh, those behind it should pat themselves on the back because it was a pretty successful censorship propaganda campaign. And they'll probably do it next time, too. <laughs> and people in the media will go along with it because they share the same values.
3: I just but, hope that yeah. anybody listening to it that that struggled with this, that is on the left, realizes that you can like... Get over the free speech thing. I promised you could move past it and <laughs> onto better stuff. Like, oh, and really it'll make much. us stronger the next time this happens.
0: Well, I I, I appreciate the the motivating talk, and I, I I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of people. So thank you, thanks for sharing. You're so open. Thanks. Uh, bye. Okay. Take care. okay, Monica. And Monica, if you're there, there's a mute button. There you go.
8: Hey, Aaron. Um, Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling you from Dublin in Ireland, and uh, maybe many of your listeners are not interested in the European angle here. Um, there, are, I've tried to contact you a number of times, but it's always just been too late in the evening. Um, well, there are a number of things I wanted to um, bring up. Um, one of them was around um ukraine and uh the east of ukraine and naively um it reminded me very much of northern ireland um Mm -hmm. i come from the border of northern ireland and up there you had um nationalists who thought felt they were irish and um unionists who felt they were british um that was going on for quite a long time. But after 30 years of violence, we got a peace agreement there. I think the difference there was that the US were interested in a peace agreement. The UK were interested and the EU was interested. But the circumstances of the, um, the Donbass region, to me, looks quite similar in terms of you, you know, the different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but there just does not seem to be any interest uh, from the US or the EU in uh, promoting a peace agreement. I am also very anti-war, um, but I it's not good enough just to be anti-war. You have to be pro-peace and yeah. try to figure out how the hell you get a peace agreement going. And I just don't see any appetite for that um, from the US or the EU. And possibly not from uh, Moscow as well. I'm really not sure.
0: Well, I mean, at this point now, I I don't know if Russia would like at this point what they would what they would entertain in terms of a deal because they've gone so far, they've put so much into this war that it might just uh, there might not be any more room for them for any kind of compromise from their point of view. I don't know, but yeah, I certainly agree that there's been no interest in peace in Ukraine because I think you know as like. I've written about this. There was a RAND Corporation study. The RAND Corporation is like a Pentagon-funded think tank back in 2019, and they identify it's looking at all the ways to best weaken Russia, and they're going through all the options, the whole menu of options. The top option was to fuel a civil war in the Donbass and force Russia to spend resources there. So the U.S. has always seen this as an opportunity to bleed Russia, just as they did to the Soviet Union and Afghanistan, and I think that's just what is continuing this policy, and that's why, I mean, Zelensky... Whatever his own intentions were, he was elected on a mandate of peace. That's what many people who voted for him thought he was going to do. And he tried. He made some effort. Um, he signed on to this thing called the Steinmeier Formula, which is a German mm-hmm. plan to, to like implement the Minsk Accords. The Minsk Accords was the agreement signed by Ukraine and Russia to end the war on the Donbass that broke out after the 2014 coup. He tried. He, you know, he took some steps. To, he built a bridge between... The Donbass and uh, Ukraine is like sort of a symbolic gesture, but also a practical one, too, to help increase, you know, uh, re- uh, reconciliation and ties. Um, he appointed a good fr- uh, and, and I've written about this recently in my latest subtech article. He, he appointed a good friend of his um, named Sergei Savoko. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong. And Savoko like, was Zelensky's comedy partner or like a, a producer on his comedy show, like a good friend of his. And Savoko's is from the Donbass. And uh, in March 2020, Sovoko unveiled what he called the National Platform for Reconciliation and Unity. And he unveiled it in, in Mariupol, uh, which has a big presence of Azov. And he got 20 minutes into his presentation talking about the need to have reconciliation, to have dialogue between the two sides of the Ukraine Civil War. And he only made it 20 minutes because members of the National Corps, which is basically an offshoot of the Azov Battalion, The neo-Nazi paramilitary group rushed the stage and assaulted him. And Zelensky, I think, got the message that he was basically next. And so Zelensky, a few weeks later, fired his friend from his council and basically abandoned his peace initiative. And we never hear in the U.S. about this guy. Like we never, when we hear about how we need to support Ukrainians and stand, we never hear about people like this guy, Zelensky's own friend, who tried to promote dialogue and peace because. He doesn't serve the agenda of fueling a war in Ukraine. And so people like him don't exist.
8: Okay, but presumably you have heard about the, I think I've seen it uh, on your Twitter feed about Merkel's comments on the Minsk agreements.
0: Yes, we have seen that. And I I said earlier today that, um, you know, so yes, on the surface, it looks like she's admitting that Minsk was just a sham, that they had no intention of ever actually making peace in the East. But you know what? uh someone there's a website called moon of alabama which i read pretty frequently and um the and 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 the person who runs it is german and he said that he thinks actually Merkel was just saying that now to appease people who like blame her for uh who accuse her of appeasing russia and so she's trying to basically suck up to them and uh-huh. say no i wasn't appeasing russia i was actually trying to fool russia into stalling for time to help ukraine build up for war and i think and that's what- yeah
8: Go ahead. Yeah, and she came into an awful lot of criticism because of her policy on refugees um, a number of years ago right. as well. So maybe she's trying to clean her plate. Um, the other couple of things I want to bring up very quickly was I saw Biden um, posting on Twitter about gas prices being drastically reduced in the US compared to what they were at the peak. And that's great for the US. Um, Our fuel, and I'm talking about gas as in fuel for cars, I'm talking about gas for heating, it's just gone absolutely through the roof. You know, and it's not just the um, Ukrainian crisis that's causing that, but it's a big contributor. Um, And you kind of feel over here, I mean, Ireland is not even a member of NATO. So we don't actually have any say in what's going on. Um, But we're all suffering here as a result. The other comment that I would make, um, and I'm not sure that your American listeners would be aware of it, but um, Ireland is a, is a country of five million population. It's a very small country. We have a huge, huge uh, housing crisis here um since the beginning of the uh, war in ukraine we've taken in sixty-five thousand ukrainian refugees and we have nowhere to put them wow. Now, you know, wow that's our legal obligation right as well as you know other international um, asylum seekers and there is a huge racial situation going on here because the ukrainian refugees are not you know look i i feel for them of course that they're fleeing from war for sure but they are allowed to come in here and they get visas, not visas, but they're allowed to work here they're allowed to they're just treated like a normal Irish citizen, whereas if you're an international refugee, you're kept in these detention centers and you have to go through years and years trying to get a visa
1: yeah. and
8: um, Irish citizenship so there is uh, there is a huge racial situation going on here, uh, but, but apart from the the racist element of it, we just you know, we have nowhere to realistically house these people. And it's it's causing the rise of a far right um, element in this country. I don't know how strong it is, but we never really had a far right or far left here. We're just fairly, you know, in the middle. So that that's a, a situation that's um, emerging here. Right. Um, well, listen,
0: Mark, I'm going to cut in there because I have a lot more calls. Thanks a lot. For, thank, no, 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 no. Uh, thanks a lot for, for sharing all that. And that's a really interesting to hear about the dynamic of refugees. And it reminds me of the way the U S treats refugees. Like if it's a country, the U S is trying to overthrow, then refugees get, you know, a, a much, have a much higher chance of asylum. If it's like, if it's somewhere where the U S is the ally of the dictatorship, then they get sent right back. Yeah. And then that, that's just, you know, yeah. um, like Haiti, like comparing Haiti and Cuba is a good example um, when the U.S. is trying to overthrow the Haitian government, then everyone's welcome. But when they're not, then the doors are closed, and that's just the sure. cruel world. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Okay, Tom.
9: Uh, yeah. Hi. Um, hi there. Uh, so, with respect to that comment, those comments from uh, Merkel uh, recently, uh, you—I you don't know if it was in that Moon of Alabama article that you mentioned there, but. Um, one thing that she must have been aware of is that by making these comments, she's making negotiation for Putin virtually impossible, politically. Mm, yes. Now, this is, she's no idiot when it comes to this kind of thing. She's actually a very good negotiator, not that I ever liked her very much. But, um, and, and so she knew what she was doing there, and she must have known that that would be an outcome. Yeah. And it seems to me if anybody wants a negotiated peace out of this, we need to be paying attention to what people like this are doing, and it seems to me that this is quite consistent with, you know, the bombing of the Nord Stream two pipeline.
0: Mm-hmm. That
9: happened at a moment when uh, some German politicians were starting to realise what they were sanctioning themselves into, um, and said, "Well, maybe we need to do something to get the gas flowing again." Well, you know, now the gas can't flow. There's nothing to negotiate for.
0: Anymore. Yes. Yes. So I'm just going yes. to that. I, I completely agree with you. I, uh, I totally agree. And then you, you have to then wonder too, so Merkel really pushed through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So was that also a cynical ploy as well? You know, certainly yeah. when when the moment came, Germany caved and, and shut it down under U.S. pressure. Um, so was that just a ploy to to mislead Russia into thinking that like, you know, reconciliation and ties were closer. I don't know. I mean, it seems crazy to think, but you can never. I mean, with Merkel saying that Minsk was never intended to make peace, it was intended to give Ukraine time. You can't rule stuff like that out. Um, and it's again, it's the people of their countries that suffer the most, and these leaders just don't just don't care about that. Tom, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Okay, John. John, are you there? Okay. John seems to be having some audio problems, so we'll go on. Oh, there we go. Yeah, Yeah.
10: Yeah, so I tried to call last week. I think the app was having some difficulties, so I'm glad I could get in today. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the actual um, situation on the ground, specifically Around the city of Bakhmut. Uh, there's this uh, relatively small but quite fortified uh, municipality called Bakhmut that the Ukrainians uh, really want to hold on to. Uh, the Russians have them essentially surrounded from the south uh, and the east uh, with fire suppression on some of the main roads. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about Ukraine possibly uh, retreating from uh, that particular city uh, to more defensive lines. This comes at around the same time that I'm seeing some interesting articles uh, from mainstream media. There was one in Newsweek entitled, Lessons from the U.S. Civil War, How uh, Show Why Ukraine Can't Win by Michael Goffler and David Rundle. Uh, And there's also another uh, interesting article from the British publication, The Telegraph, that says uh, Putin's new General Armageddon injects discipline and stabilizes Russian army. I'm wondering maybe from your perspective, um, if Bakhmut Falls and maybe some of the Donetsk Oblast Falls, given uh, some of the talk from these particular articles, If freezing the conflict is at all possible, um, if only for the United States to use it essentially uh, as leverage against Russia in the future and also to pivot away uh, to more strategically important regions like, you know, East Asia, for example.
0: Yeah, I think that's quite plausible. I think, look, the, the aim of this proxy war, I think, from U.S. perspective, was just to bleed Russia and maybe things go so badly the economy gets crushed so badly that Putin gets overthrown. The economy part hasn't worked. Russia's economy has suffered, but it's, it's survived. And so, yeah, I, I think they might be at a decision that they've done all they can. They bled Russia as much as they can, but they could, um, if the conflict remains at a stalemate for a long time, I think that'd be fine with the U S um, and they'd be willing to divert resources elsewhere to, to Taiwan, um, for example. But um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's hard to say and militarily on the battlefield that it's it's not something I'm well versed in. I just my overarching view is that, you know, Russia's size and military strength would always make it very difficult, not impossible for Ukraine to prevail. And that's why I think the only like the best shot Ukraine ever had, was just basically to delay a loss for as long as possible. And that is, I think, the U.S. position is to like bleed Russia for as long as they can.
10: Yeah, and I also don't think uh, it's necessarily something that Russia would be adverse to, given the fact that, you know, they've only annexed these four oblasts, Kherson, Zaporosia Donetsk, and Luhansk. Um, they could essentially say to their own citizenry, hey, we came to do what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. We did it. We accomplished the mission. And the U.S. can say, well, we stopped them from going to Kiev. We stopped them from... Uh, taking the entirety of Ukraine, you know, we, we, Mm -hmm. we've protected freedom and democracy through most of the country. It's, it's a success from our perspective. Um, it would make sense, I guess.
0: It would make sense. Uh, and thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay. Skip. And then we're going to wrap it up.
11: Oh, Aaron, thanks. And thanks for giving me a moment yesterday, yesterday at the Assange event. Um, I just wanted to say that with all the problems that we have as a country and around the world, um, you know, we're not going to solve them through the electoral process. Everybody says we need to organize, we need to stand up to them. And that's what I've been trying to do is um, offer an idea where people can organize within congressional districts and they can uh, focus directly on their um, representatives on the media to do their jobs properly. Um, so I put up a website. It was called Congressional Watchdog Central dot org. Uh, it's a way for people to find each other, so they can uh, come together, uh, work as a group. There's no cost. There's no uh, reason to march. You can if you want. Um, and I offered that card to you just to see if you know to to generate some interest and to. Uh, um, get the ball rolling. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it.
3: Uh, I
0: did. I have not. No. Uh, what okay. What is the name of, of the website?
11: Congressional Watchdog Central dot org. Okay.
0: okay. It's, a Nader,
11: it's a It's a. It's an an idea that Nader started with, and I, I made a few changes, uh, only because I didn't think we needed to. to uh, we didn't need money to uh, you know um, support a, a storefront, yeah. and that people can. You know, organize within their local communities and create communities. Exactly the the kinds of problems that the um, mainstream media and the government has done by dividing us. I mean, there's your audience and the audience, like Jimmy's audience, and and um, there's still quite a bit of people out there who are like minded and would be willing to stand up and work as not in, not by protesting, but um, what would empower them is this idea of mutual knowledge, which is on an uh, RSA or RS anime uh, on that website. It kind of describes the idea that, um, you know, we could stand up to these people and keep them accountable.
0: Got it. Skip, thanks for the call. And we'll take one more call from Henry.
2: Hi, Aaron. Um, Hi there.
3: Well, I have nothing new to contribute. I'm just, uh, super, uh, excited to be right here. And, you know, I learned about your dad recently and I'm reading his book and it's kind of wonderful.
0: I, I don't have anything oh, hey, to say. Yes, hey, uh, kind words are always welcome here. And so I really appreciate that. and um, I'm glad you like uh, my dad's book. It's, um,
2: yeah, it's it's kind of wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's helping,
3: it's helping my friend
0: out uh, really a lot. Oh, that, that's, right wonderful. that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, and thank you for calling. That's a nice way to end the show with some kind words. It's, it's, uh, it's always welcome. So thanks. <laughs> well, take it easy, man. You too. Good on All you. Me. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm sorry to the callers I didn't get to. I uh, hope you'll call back next time and have a great,